Welcome to Tech Leaders Hub, where we interview technical managers to ask them about their winning strategies, lessons learned, and actionable advice for other leaders. I'm your host, Jakub Greitzar. Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to Tech Leaders Hub, episode number 21. My guest today is Daniel Gabler, CTO at Picnic. Daniel, how are you doing today? Very, very good. Uh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it too. And thank you all watchers and listeners watching this from the very first minute. Whether you're joining live or whether you're watching the recording, thank you so much for spending time with Tech Leaders Hub and spending some time to upgrade your technology, your leadership knowledge and to get inspired. We hope you'll enjoy the show today. You know, the topic of our session, which I'm really excited about is this, you know, we had this preliminary conversation a little while ago. The topic is this magic formula of growing in all directions at once. And I'm thinking, you know, for the conversation that we have, for the knowledge that you have to share today, who do you hope is tuning in? Who do you think will benefit the most from what we have to talk about today? So I hope that um, we have pretty diverse uh, uh, listenership, um, uh, people that uh, have some form of affinity uh, to tech, which means developers, but also product owners, uh, business people that uh, build technology, build and deploy and operate uh, tech products. Uh, what I'm most excited about is that uh, we will talk a bit about what is the potential of technology when we are building it in a scalable and well-architected way. And the reason why I'm so excited about this is that uh, startup and scale-up uh, business building is all about building technology now that mm -hmm. can either pivot it to another business model tomorrow but, or be scaled to the size that you need tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm, I will be. I will, I'm very excited to dig into all of that. So, if you're interested in any of what was just said, uh, stay with us, and we'll explore more of that during the session. Uh, what I like to do on Tech Leaders Hub here, as a kind of tradition, is before we dive into a little bit of your background, talking about picnics, so that people know what kind of experience this is based on. I wanted to ask you the traditional Tech Leaders Hub question. So I hope you're ready for it, because here it comes. Uh, Daniel, what is your number one tip for tech leaders? That is pretty cool that you start with this because that is a common question that uh, people ask at the end after a lot of uh, kind of stuff has happened. I think the uh, most important lesson that we learned over the last years is that it's not so much about the technology choice that you make, but the more the architecture that you use when building something is number one. Maybe one bonus one is uh, if you build something, uh, look into the cost of change and not on the cost of building. So when we are building software, we all try to do a little bit of planning. Uh, we think about an agile and a scrum process to build it in a most efficient way to easily launch it to our customers. But actually, not many of us are looking into how difficult is it to change what you have built. Uh, mm -hmm. If you truly think about uh, data-driven, experiment-driven software development, then uh, what you know is that the software or the product that you're building now needs to be changed 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. So you should optimize that these 1,000 changes that you do afterwards are uh, as painless as possible and not mm -hmm. that the first version is uh, as quickly as possible built. It's very interesting. So you're talking about making these changes painless. What are kind of the, the steps towards that? What should tech leaders kind of pay attention to or tell their teams to atten pay attention to to make these changes you know, not so costly? I think uh, there are two things. Number one is you should all apply an evolutionary architecture, which in very simple terms, there's, there's an entire theory behind it. But uh, 
the business value of it is that it makes the cost of change of the architecture, not only the implementation technology, as uh, optimizes for low cost of change and not low cost of building. This is number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, doesn't matter if you're a product owner, if you're a business operator, if you're an engineer or if you're a QA, you need to understand the architecture. You don't need mm -hmm. to understand all features. You don't need to understand all use cases, but you need to understand the architecture that you have built because that is really driving the opportunity of tomorrow. That's interesting. Uh, so just to follow up on this a, a little bit more, because I'd like to kind of unpack some of the uh, phrase, you know, concepts that we're going to be using just upfront, again, to kind of give the maximum context to the people watching and listening. When you say architecture, what do you mean by that? Is it how the, you know, the databases relate to the back end, to the front end? What else is there that kind of that is hidden under this uh, this word here? So with architecture, architecture exists on different abstraction levels. So you have mm -hmm. high level uh, logical architecture, implementation architecture, you have test architectures, et cetera, et cetera. So this is mm -hmm. altogether one aspect of it. The second aspect is beside the technical or the software architecture, you have also product architecture. What is very important is that product owners and business owners and business operators think carefully about the product architecture that can communicate with engineers in the language and the kind of the interface of an architecture. Mm -hmm. So it is not so much that the kind of a business owner say, tells you, well, I want to have this feature realized, customers asking me for this, but it's about that the business owner thinks a bit about conceptually how does a new feature request or a new business request fits in the overall product vision and product architecture. And that makes uh, it much easier and a less painful dialogue between engineering, tech, and business. And that makes also this, everybody talks about tech and business needs to come together. Tech is basically the opposite of business. If you have this kind of product architecture well-defined and communicated, then uh, you automatically have a language uh, that glues both sides together. All right. So is, is this related to, and I, this might be a miss, obviously, is this related to, I don't know, I'm talking with uh, one of our users, let's say, uh, I, I mean, I'm responsible for product development or or maybe I'm getting some feedback on the, I don't know, customer support side. Again, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong at any, at any point. And they're requesting a new feature. Is this about just being aware of, okay, you're, I'm hearing this feature is being requested, but I'm also aware of all the other features that are already in the application. And, you know, this somehow there's going to be either a clash or some confusion if we add this new feature. Am I on the right track here? Yes, certainly. Um, so I think the interesting thing is uh, what product owners have traditionally done. Uh, and tech leaders is say analyze a single uh, feature or a single kind of implementation and see a bit what is the most efficient implementation, how do you make it scalable, resilient, how do you test it, all this kind of stuff. And okay. we are really good altogether uh, doing that. What we are as an industry not good enough yet is putting a new feature or a new implementation in the context of everything what you have built. And when you're thinking a bit about a more an uh, an, an aging system or a kind of a system that is much bigger, then uh, a new feature is always in the context of everything what you have there. So maybe you have already built something which is similar to this. Maybe a feature is more a generalization of an existing feature, et cetera. At some point, if your system is large enough, you will no longer be able to spot this if you're not talking, well, let's say if tech is not talking with business in terms of the product architecture. Okay. 
Well, yeah, so that explains a lot. I think it's a very valuable kind of expanded number one tip. I want to dive more into this in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we kind of get more into that, I wanted the watchers and listeners to get to know you a little bit better, you know? So mm-hmm. could you, you know, spend a moment talking about, uh, you know, your path here, you know, where you are right now, talk about Picnic, about yourself, just so people have this little bit of context and so that you, we know what kind of, who we're talking with at what, at what kind of company. So, uh, Picnic is an online supermarket uh, food and logistic disruptor that we started in 2015. So by now, Mm -hmm. seven years ago here in Amsterdam. I myself came to this wonderful city to do my PhD in computer science. Uh, Love the city, love the country, estate. Uh, I did at some point also an MBA, but this is just education. So that is not a. This is only let's say the very early uh, things that you do at some point. What is more important is that I have first worked a bit in B2B, where, mm-hmm. you know, where we built a retail uh, recommendation platform, which is essentially building this users who bought that, uh, bought also that, or users may like that. So the most important part of, uh, of an e-commerce site. Um, and what we learned here is basically two things. Number one is we learned to separate what is important and what is less important uh, in, in retail tech. And number two is that everything what is non-food so electronics, books, fashion, etc., has already uh, is already pretty mature. If you look to the entire e-retail uh, world, if you look right. to food, that that is something. And I'm now talking from a, a 2015 perspective, is already super immature. There's so much more to do. It is the same mm-hmm. size of market. So non-food mm-hmm. is the same size as food uh, as, as a kind of a retail market, but actually food is only a market that is one to three percent size uh, big. Uh, if you look to the entire retail size, while um, non-food, so electronics, books, fashion, is already 20, 30, 40, 50%. So we thought that there's a nice business opportunity, but also on the tech side, because it's so immature, and immature means it's so traditional and there's so much opportunity to do with modern blockchain and crypto and whatever kind of technologies uh, make it more advanced, that uh, this is something we immediately saw uh, an opportunity to go into and to really make a change with technology and create a, a direct and lasting uh, customer value. Okay, so what I'm hearing is uh, you were looking at uh, buying food versus buying non-food products online, and you saw that the experience of buying food is just way behind everything that's that's non-food, and you thought to change that, would that be accurate to say? Exactly, exactly. And the way to put this maybe a bit in numbers, if there's only 2% uh, of uh, customers uh, that are buying food online versus uh, 98% offline, then mm-hmm. uh, you have a very different dialogue than if you have half of uh, customers buying electronics online, half offline. If you're an, an electronics retailer, then in order to win online, somebody else needs to lose in the online game. If you are a food retailer online, you no, nobody else in the online game needs to lose. You just need to convince somebody from the remaining 98% that are still mm-hmm. uh, doing food shopping offline to come online. So this is a much more attractive uh, way of uh, way of working and way of uh, developing and innovating. Right, so the competition is completely different because instead of looking at the other online stores, you're competing against getting up from your couch and going to the store. Exactly. So in essence, uh, our biggest competition uh, is, um, is not even classic of physical retail, but it's more the habit of people. And what I mean yeah. by this is, for instance, food shopping, you do much more often. So typically you go two, three, four times per week to a physical yeah. supermarket. And uh, what happens if you go for 10, 15, 20 years, a few times per week to a physical supermarket, tomorrow you, you will go again. 
because this is of simply course, a, learned, habit. a learned habit. So yeah. therefore, for us, the, the real thing, what we need to break or what we need to, uh, what we compete against is the habit of people to go to a physical supermarket. And there, technology plays then also a role because technology can give a, a better price point, can give much more attractive offerings, and can also simplify uh, the process of not only shopping for food, but also getting uh, food uh, delivered. Yeah, I mean, personally, to me, that sounds just exciting on a personal level because I really dislike going to the physical <laughs> store. I would rather have everything come to me. So I really want to hear more about that. Uh, look, let me just do a slight detour here because we have a question coming in from Cesare from the audience, and I really like to kind of emphasize the questions. You have questions, ask them, we will address them. Uh, so before we go into how Picnic, uh, I assume, you know, started to address that, uh, so that is interested in this evolutionary architectures part. So let me read this out because some people are only going to get the audio on the podcast and then I'll love to hear your answer. So that is asking regarding theory, would you recommend, and it's the title of a book, building evolutionary architectures support constant change? Does that ring a bell? Uh, no, the book. I uh, have read probably uh, most of the books that are out there regarding uh, evolutionary architectures. There's all kind of research papers. The interesting thing is, um, most of the books, none of the books is really good. So, uh, but on the yeah. other hand, maybe I should say it better. Uh, most of the books are actually pretty good. So you will not make a big mistake. By the way, this book is also a pretty good one uh, to, to to read. What um, you need to do is that evolutionary architectures as a theoretical concept, as an academic concept, is a pretty abstract thing. So you need to find your own implementation on how to build a resilient or an anti-fragile implementation or uh, with your architecture in your domain. So what it meant, for instance, for us is that we looked not only in the software architecture, and the but also that we combined the uh, software architecture with the physical architecture that we have in our warehouses, that we have with the vehicles, and combined oh. it in a holistic architectural picture that captures both the physical world and also the digital world. If you look to classical UML uh, type of uh, architectural diagrams, it only models um, the software architecture and then a couple of uh, actors, which is uh, the, the classical way of looking into a system design uh, based on uh, those kind of principles with a perspective that models both the logical and the digital aspects and the physical aspects and the system actors. You get a much more holistic view on a system and you can also decide what do you capture, for instance, from a resilience and scalability perspective in the physical architecture, maybe with a self-traffic car or maybe with a self-accelerating, self-braking uh, a car versus what you do in the, in the, in the uh, digital planning software. Wow. Okay. So, so mapping this architecture, both like digital and physical, is that something that you've done also at Picnic? Am I getting that right? Yeah, we have certainly done done this year. Uh, probably not good, not 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 yet good enough. So uh, I'm uh, I'm looking into uh, doing uh, doing much more uh, with it. But we are certainly uh, have done uh, major steps there. This entire okay. um, many of us uh, have heard about and maybe have worked with uh, the notion of a digital twin, which is very mm -hmm. closely related to this, where you build a digital model of your physical world. Uh, but actually, it can go also the other way around. You build maybe a physical twin of the digital world. And if you think this concept a little bit further, then you need to also think architecturally about what does it mean if physical and digital uh, aspects are moving more and more together. And yeah. you see this, for instance, in cars like, like Tesla, 
where you have a very also a holistic view on a physical and a digital architecture where you have a clearly a lot of kind of physical aspects are moving more to the digital space uh, or the software space and are modeled uh, over software. This is the main right. difference of the Tesla architecture versus a traditional uh, Mercedes uh, from 1980. Right, because as I understand it, the Tesla cars, they're so kind of self-aware on the software level with these sensors that they've got, you know, they, they know what's happening with each physical part of the car as it's, uh, sure. as, as it's functioning. And if you, if you model this in a physical way, a car has a driver, uh, a car has other kind of physical uh, a camera. So this kind of technology were, uh, also existed, uh, certainly in cars of the 80s and 90s, etc. But Tesla has one of the first companies that is actually modeling the entire physical and digital space in one uh, in one holistic picture. And then yeah. the decision, what do you digitize and how do you transition more of physical architecture to digital architecture is a kind of a very new, uh, very kind of new perspective to, to take. Okay, wow, that's, that's very interesting. Let's put a pin in that just for a second. I still want to kind of build for the watchers and listeners the kind of the context of Picnic in general. But thank you, Cesare, for the question. I, I love everything Daniel said as the answer. Uh, so thank you so much for, for stimulating the, the discussion. Okay, so backtracking just a little bit. Uh, we were talking about this untapped food e-commerce market that you were looking at. And now, well, that brings us very smoothly to, to Picnic, kind of the value proposition. How did you decide to change that? And how did you kind of go about it? And how did it scale? Tell me everything about that. Yes. So um, the starting point where basically we, we looked into what is the reason that uh, this uh, food market is still so small and in uh, the, as the online fraction and identified yeah. two things. Number one is nobody wants to wait. And number two, nobody uh, wants to pay more than in the offline variant. So there is a of kind course. of... Very, yeah, that's true for me too. <laughs> that is kind of first principles, very clear for everybody, but it has... If you think conceptually and structurally about it, it has clear implications. So if you don't want to wait, then you need to uh, not only deliver faster, but you need to deliver in smaller uh, time windows. And mm -hmm. the interesting observation is it's even more important what is the kind of time window that you deliver. Typical delivery services give you a window of two hours, four hours, six hours. If you make out of a six-hour window, maybe only a, a 15 or 20-minute window, then people are actually much more willing to order with you. This number so one. the window is basically the promise of your groceries are going to arrive yeah. between 7 and 8 p.m. And you're saying if it's a longer time span, people are less willing to buy. But if they know it's coming within those 20 minutes, they can kind of plan their day around it. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and um, um, what what is happening, so an example is a Dutch family typically eats dinner at 6 o'clock. Normal delivery companies uh, told in the past that they, they will deliver between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. Now you have an issue as a family. If it's 4 p.m., you can use it for dinner. 8 p.m., you can't. Yeah, it's so useless. that is simply not good enough. This is just not good enough. So in reverse, if you tell them, well, we will deliver between uh, uh, 5.30 and 5.50, then it's pretty clear if you want to make a dinner at 6 o'clock, you can use it. If we tell you upfront, we could deliver between 7 and 7.20, then you simply won't. You will uh, use other food. And this kind of clarity in communication, uh, which sounds very easy now, but it uh, was not that uh, obvious in the beginning, helps customers to plan their day and uh, actually gives them comfort to uh, to order online. Okay, but how are you getting that done? How are you able to, you know, because it's, it's easy enough to say it's going to be delivered within those 20 minutes, but obviously logistically, it's a yeah. huge challenge. So how are you actually yeah. you know, addressing so, that? So first of all, 
you need to identify that this is relevant for customer. So that's uh, if you have done this, then just putting it out as a statement to a customer is a first step. But then living up to it, uh, this is what you're what you're uh, bringing as a point. It's actually pretty yeah. hard. Yeah, it has two angles. Number one is making much more accurate plans than anybody else before. But this by itself is not good enough. And then make the plan happen. So making a more accurate planning is uh, there's a lot of uh, AI and machine learning and deep learning that we use in order to make very accurate um, logistical planning. And that includes also traffic forecasting. Uh, that means uh, not at home forecasting, all kinds of stuff that mm-hmm. uh, you can do much more accurate if you have a larger customer base and a very tech-oriented uh, way of running your logistics. The second one is that you actually reverse your operation, uh, that you say at some point there's a plan out, and then operations means live up to the plan. And then you mm-hmm. steer your plan and the way how you do logistics that you um, deliver on time uh, to all your customers. And then there's a, an entire operational process that, that, that makes this happen. That may also mean that if you, somebody's late, that you have a second car that is uh, delivering to customers, all kind of stuff to mm-hmm. make it possible that every customer gets its uh, delivery proposition fulfilled. So that's the kind of challenge in the physical logistics of it. Can you tell me anything? Because obviously, tech theorists, have watchers and listeners are going to be curious about the technological challenge involved. Yes. So uh, I think the interesting uh, uh, topic um, on the logistics side is the how do you plan this? And the real interesting thing, and uh, maybe uh, more on the algorithmic side, is you you make a full day plan, which is a classical travelman salesman problem. It's actually an extension of travelman salesman, which is called BRT. WP. So for those uh, out there that uh, have uh, not heard, and this by the way, nearly everybody, nobody has heard this before, (laughs) Uh, uh, this is vehicle route planning with time windows and capacity constraints. And Mm -hmm. time windows means you deliver between 5 and 6 or between 5 and 5.30. And uh, capacity constraints means you have maybe 20 cars and each car can uh, hold uh, five orders. This is uh, kind of an extension. Um, yeah. the, so uh, there is there is an, uh, a polynomial algorithm that allows you to translate this VRT TWP problem in a T-Tolman salesman problem. Uh, as your readers will very likely know, I said uh, TSP is an NP-hall problem, which means that if the problem is big enough, so you have enough large enough orders and deliveries that you need to plan, you can no longer accurately compute it. it would take just too long. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you need to apply heuristics. For the heuristics, and uh, that is kind of the, what we have developed here, uh, we have a, found a very smart way of basically slicing the problem in sub-problems that we can solve in quasi-exact uh, notions. So basically, we, we distribute or we shape the entire country in sub-parts and sub-regions and another sub-regions, which becomes like a big, big puzzle. And then we can optimize, build the optimal route between those kind of uh, sub puzzles, these are small areas, uh, for instance, in cities, and then we have a quasi-optimal route between those kind of puzzle pieces that is driven by the deliveries or that is the result of the deliveries of the last uh, four weeks. All right, so you're using historical data to inform that. Historical data plus optimal calculation of a sub-region will uh, deliver to a 95% accurate route or optimal route uh, for today's operation, <laughs> My mind is and, then, uh, and then you get to a, to a very nice, uh, very nice self-learning system because you do 
you take today's operation as a feedback loop also into tomorrow's planning. So therefore, okay. every additional date generates a little bit of more data that is put as uh, input for the planning of the next day. So therefore, this is a system that becomes every day a little bit smarter, where just more operations, meaning just delivering for more days, makes the system better and better. It's, it sounds like really fulfilling the promise of machine learning, you know, that it's thinking like a human, learning like a human, and doing a better and better job at whatever it's told to do. Uh, at least we are aiming for it. Uh, it's yeah. it's not yet. It's certainly not Skynet, but uh, we are certainly aiming for uh, for 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 a very smart uh, distribution system. Yeah, <laughs> I guess we don't want Skynet. <laughs> no, <laughs> at least we don't want. No. Tell me about because I'm still visualizing this uh, just out of my own curiosity. How how small are the subregions, and how small does it need to be for the problem to be computable? So. Um, the size of the region is mainly driven by how many orders uh, we have in this region. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, calculate uh, on a daily basis, we are computing roughly a million uh, million orders. Uh, the sub-region, uh, to calculate it in exact terms, can be a few hundred, um, a few hundred deliveries. A few hundred mm -hmm. deliveries means already, if you look to the uh, possible solution space, well, this is n minus np divided by p uh, faculty, uh, is simply usually uh, already in the, in the space of 10 to the power of 12 uh, different kind of deliveries, which is the number of atoms in the universe. So that's, uh, that's large enough to, uh, to be big enough that uh, you just want to have heuristics. Yeah, okay. So I'm sorry if this is a little bit ignorant, but I'm still trying to think the subregions, like on a map, <laughs> if you're talking like Amsterdam, for example, how many subregions is it? So uh, Amsterdam has 750,000 or 800,000 uh, people that are living in Amsterdam. We have split it all together in uh, 13 uh, different regions. 13, okay. So yes. that's, 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 that's the scale. Okay, sorry. So that makes it a lot more concrete in my mind. So I thought yeah. for the watchers and listeners, no, I would no. ask that Very too. This, this is all fascinating. Watchers and listeners, if you have questions, shoot them. I'm going to just keep shooting mine because I have so many based on what you just said now. So now I wanted to kind of circle back to Okay, so so is this also part of the kind of the question that we're asking here in terms of well, you've built this and now how does it scale? Like, I want to dig into the the magic formula of you know of of growing in all these directions at once. So on the one hand, I see that you kind of have more and more subregions, more and more orders, right? But when you we were talking about this, you seemed to kind of highlight a few different levels on which you know picnic is scaling and you're managing to make it happen all at once. I can bet a lot of the watchers and listeners, you know, people listening to the podcast later, maybe hi. Uh, good to have you here uh, if you're listening to the podcast uh, are thinking okay how do I achieve that so can you talk a little bit more about that which directions is that and how you're managing to kind of balance it out have it all in a sense having it all is, ne is never always possible but uh, let me yeah, maybe explain sure. a bit the kind of the three dimensions that we are growing uh, roughly at the same time first is there's geographic expansion so that means uh, a new city a new area a new country etc and that is pretty classical business growth, which requires also a bit of work on the on the tech side, but uh, that is uh, limited. Mm -hmm. um, it has a very interesting challenge that I will, will, will mention a little bit later. The second dimension is automating more and more of those kind of processes. And what is interesting here is that how do, how do we identify what to scale, uh, what, uh, what should be automated and what not? And the interesting aspect is we are not looking into uh, what is maybe a 
most expensive or maybe most labor in intensive. But we are looking into which kind of functions in the business or in the, in the, in the company can we no longer operate if we are 10 times, 100 times or 1,000 times bigger. This is okay. a pure kind of a, a scale question is if we are 100 times bigger than now, which will happen not too, not too far from now, can we still do this 100 times more than what we do now? So if something, for instance, in a linear rail scales, everything what we cannot operate, if you're 100 times bigger, we automate. Everything what we can do, so which is sublinear scaling, we will certainly not yet automate. That comes maybe as a later stage. And the third one is, uh, the third aspect is, how can we expand our uh, business operating model to with the same kind of infrastructure to maybe uh, offer more services? So a very interesting example is, we do forward logistics, meaning we deliver products to customers from a warehouse or from a food producer. If you then look into a, what is your asset utilization, eh? so for instance, the cars that you have on the street, you use them only 50%. You go full to a customer, you go empty back. So only half the time, not really good. So if yeah. you would use only uh, half of your development time, then uh, you would say, well, you develop 20 hours per week and the other 20 is uh, you're playing uh, some games. Not good enough. So what, uh, what, what we are looking into is then how can we increase the utilization from 50% to 70%, 80%. So that, is the, that was the starting point where we said we can maybe also take stuff back from a customer to a retailer. So one example is if you buy fashion, eh, then many people are actually buying fashion the following way. You're actually buying five pairs of jeans. You pick the one that you like and you send four back. Everybody is doing this. I, I so, just did that last week. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. So that means in such a world, uh, there's a lot of return from customers to merchants. So normally a customer would say, well, I need to bring this to a postal service and need to send it back, which is annoying for the post, which is annoying uh, uh, for the customer, annoying for the merchant because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. So we solve basically for all three uh, dimensions uh, the problem by taking it back with our vehicles to, uh, to the merchant. So, so I can order my groceries and also kind of hand off my unwanted jeans at the same time. That is exactly what you can do with Picnic. That is exactly <laughs> what you awesome. can do here. Seriously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So okay. So so that's how you're kind of managing to utilize, and that's that's kind of a new business line for you, but also one that perfectly fits in, into what's already happening. These cars exactly. are already driving around. Yes. So that's uh, that's one of the many 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 opportunities. I think an interesting challenge is always how do you pick the right challenge uh, to tackle? It's yeah. never easy. It's never mm -hmm. easy. Um, sometimes I'm getting the question as this is this is pretty annoying to say so often no because uh, we have basically ten times more ideas that we can realize. So if you look to a roadmap, uh, then there's a very long roadmap, and I I need to tell everybody well actually we do the first few items, but. Uh, all the 90% that is uh, in the second half, as uh, or the second 90%, uh, the, the, the bottom line, is, uh, cannot be done, which yeah. is actually something you should be happy of. So first of all, it says that your business is very creative, so we have a lot of opportunities, a lot of ideas that you can do. It's even much worse if you have, if you have a roadmap where everybody is asking uh, you to do exactly what you can do with your capacity, with your development uh, power, then mm -hmm. you have a very non-creative uh, business or product counterpart. Because uh, in essence, you want that you need to make a selection. So therefore, I think it's nice to, to do this kind of selection. On the other hand, you need to find a very good kind of technology or uh, product model to assess what is the most important thing to do now, where you build usually uh, this kind of 
mix out of what do you need to uh, do bug fixing wise so killing the fires that are burning mm-hmm. what are important critical features that you need on the short term and what are strategic capabilities uh, in the future that you build and that is something what obviously on a feature on a product set uh, let's say product dimension you build but also on the technology side so for instance um when uh, we made the adoption to Kubernetes and to Terraform and to Helm and to Docker, et cetera, which we didn't have in the beginning, but which we did in uh, 2016, 17, 18, we looked into uh, not only what can it bring us on the short term immediately, but what can it bring us now in 2022 when we are scaling extremely fast and have to have to uh, manage a pretty large set of microservices that are deployed across all kind of uh, AWS availability zones. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... A few follow-up questions about that, but one that kind of immediately comes to mind is we're talking about how Picnic is scaling fast and in many directions. Can you give us like an idea of the scale of this, actually, you know, the, the scale of the scaling, like the pace, you know, what are we talking about in terms of, because that, that is obviously a huge challenge. So can you yeah. like give us an idea of the magnitude here? Yes, uh, maybe um, maybe two numbers that, uh, that I can share with you. So the first one is... Uh, week over week, we are growing uh, somewhere between uh, two, uh, no, three to five percent, which if you do this every week, compounds to a very, week very by week, you said. Week by week, uh, which is a very significant number that you then uh, get on a yearly basis. But even if you look to the absolute size, uh, we had last year an uh, uh, annual sales of, uh, of a billion. So that has grown already to a, a pretty nice size. And we just yeah. continue to uh, to grow like that uh, for a couple of more years, and then uh, we will see where we end. Wow. Okay. Great. So thank you, because that really lets me know that this this is a huge operation, obviously. So I'm not sure if I got like a like a satisfying enough question to this whole. I, I I'm making notes here, which I, you don't usually do, but I'm trying to latch on to so many different things here. Is like uh, you mentioned that the challenge is how to pick the right challenge, right? So when you are faced with a decision like this, obviously you know being CTO, you're faced with some of the biggest decisions there are. How do you usually weigh them? Are there any kind of questions that you ask yourself? Because I'm seeing, you know, fixing fires versus the short term versus the long term. But when it this is the time that you actually decide, how do you calculate that? Um, I think there's no real kind of a magic around it. Um, um, yeah. What obviously this kind of uh, killing fires and uh, more short term topics uh, you do uh, much more often. So that is something what you review on a, a weekly basis. Uh, the more strategic, bigger topics uh, you work on uh, more on a quarterly basis. What we do as a planning model is that we align uh, all kind of different kind of product roadmaps and uh, business roadmaps on a quarterly basis. So every three months, we take a step back. We are reviewing what have you done over the last three months, where are we standing now, and uh, what should we do for the next three months? And is this are we still on track on uh, what we want to achieve in the next uh, few years? And uh, then it's all about also adjusting a bit the red dot on the horizon because uh, some new opportunities are arising uh, mm-hmm. where we also, let's say, update our strategic um, uh, direction. Uh, sometimes also new technologies are popping up. So an example is um, that there's a lot of uh, stuff happening around uh, drones, uh, a lot of uh, VR and AR, a lot of uh, around autonomous driving that is maybe not immediately applicable uh, all to us yet, but we know that uh, these are maturing technologies that will become Mm -hmm. very relevant for us in the next uh, three to five years. So therefore running uh, first kind of prototypes, first uh, hackathons, uh, first uh, sessions 
while you experiment a bit with those technologies are something uh, that is certainly on my agenda and is the most important uh, thing to do here. Right, yeah, because you need to be kind of stay, you know, two steps, three steps, ten steps ahead of whatever is coming so that you keep this kind of market advantage. I, I get that. Um, I also wanted to follow up a little bit on the automation front. Uh, again, just out of my own curiosity, can you point out something that you saw? And first of all, well, you made this deci decision to automate it uh, because you decided, you know, it's not no longer going to be possible to do it manually when you're ten times or a hundred times bigger. Does anything come to mind as an example of something you automated and it made a big impact? Yeah, no, there are probably two good examples. So one uh, um, uh, one example is more around uh, our customer service uh, default responses. So let me give you an example. So we are asking customers for um, uh, for feedback on our products. Uh, for instance, also if they have ideas, uh, what should what else would you like to buy at Picnic? Then you send an email. A very simple automation that we did is uh, we simply send in a response that um, we received your uh, feedback on a specific item. Uh, already so many customers have asked for this item. Uh, and we will cycle back in a couple of uh, weeks' time when uh, we know more uh, if we can list this item or not. That has mm -hmm. helped us quite a bit in a relatively customer service effort. Another very interesting automation project that we launched last Friday together, by the way, with the King of Netherlands. So he was uh, here at the official opening ceremony. Is our automated oh, wow. center. So what he, what we have been doing here for the last two years is we have built a um, fulfillment center where all the kind of order operation is done in a robotized fulfillment way. So and what a robotized fulfillment means is that you as an order picker are no longer manually going to a product, but the product comes in a robotic way to you over variables and et cetera. And the only thing what you need to do is then basically putting it together in a consumer order, but that is reducing by 95% uh, the uh, walking time that you have to do in a, in a warehouse. So these are very interesting automation uh, projects that we have done. What is interesting with robotic automation uh, is all of us love cloud and uh, deploying all our stuff in cloud and uh, basically mm -hmm. most businesses are cloud native these days, et cetera, et cetera. If you really do a, a robotic control at scale, you need to have some uh, software and some infrastructure on-prem for the simple okay. reason that latency is simply, uh, there's such tough latency requirements, sub one millisecond, that you can't uh, fulfill with a typical um, general purpose cloud provider. Doesn't matter which one it is, but uh, with a general purpose cloud provider, you always have latency somewhere 10, 15, 20 milliseconds in, in a peak, which is not good enough for the robotic control on uh, uh, robotic motors, et cetera, that you need at a uh, highly robotized uh, warehouse. Okay, so so what kind of problems does it actually cause? Because I'm imagining all sorts of scenarios here. I'm imagining kind of you used cloud and then the robots were behaving in a strange way, maybe, or you just you know imagine this might be a problem. How does this actually manifest in real life? Is it that they're navigating incorrectly, or how does it work? No, well, we have already built it initially on-prem because we knew that it's uh, it would not otherwise work. But uh, if you okay. would have done in the cloud, then the, the following thing is happening: you have a um, you have a maybe an, an, an a product tote. So this is a kind of a big bag where you have maybe 20 bananas in. And those kind of bananas need to go from a storage location to a pick location. Mm -hmm. So, and then, and that is maybe a, a way it goes over 500 meters through a different kind of conveyor belts and other kind of uh, robotic uh, movements that are 
that need to happen there. In order to do this, uh, you need to go a couple of turns. Uh, in order to do the turn, you need a motor needs to put uh, something uh, from left to right in order to go, uh, let's say, to, to the right turn or the left turn. Yeah. That is something that needs to happen on a sub-millisecond uh, precise way. If right. this is not happening, your banana will just end up somewhere completely different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you need on-prem <laughs> to get your bananas where they need to, to go. Bananas in the right way. So that is a that is a very simple, very simple, let's say, scenario that uh, required for and there's there's software for this. This is called a transport. Uh, this is a transport service. There's the programmable the PLC, so programmable uh, logical controllers, etc. Very low level stuff, including uh, assembler uh, and code uh, coding that is necessary to to do this kind of robotic control. Sounds like a very exciting engineering problem, actually. Uh, it certainly is something. Uh, it's, it's a very exciting problem that uh, reminds you uh, very much on uh, your microcontroller classes that uh, some of us may have had at a university, which you never had, uh, which you completely, most of us forgot about because uh, you're building now software in the cloud, etc. So we are, we are, we have a lot of abstraction from the physical hardware, but you are now much, much closer to the hardware. Right. Okay. Because it's all happening in the in the physical world. Uh, I'm really glad I asked that follow up question, and now I can really see kind of the value of having this. I mean, the the, the non feasibility, let's say, of cloud here, because it's like you said, you know, it's it's a trend. Everybody wants to go to the cloud, but not everything is possible uh, there. So I wanted to follow up on. I'm trying to still kind of fulfill the kind of the promise that we had for the, for this session because I can see all the different ways that Picnic is kind of growing now, grabbing more territory, automating, and doing these new business lines. And honestly, I think it's genius with the you know get your groceries, return your your jeans type of uh, type of business. And I, I'm really waiting for this to come to Poland then. Uh, but kind of to fulfill the promise, then how? What do you think is the key to actually doing these things? all at once, you know, in parallel. Because I feel like if we're going to kind of explain the magic formula, so to speak, is there anything in particular that I, that you think you're doing kind of differently or better that's allowing all of this to happen at once? I think um, it's hard for me to speak about uh, the difference to, uh, to, to other businesses because uh, we have not started this uh, so well that we can really say this is the magic formula and that's the reason why it doesn't work with other businesses. Sure. But, uh, Maybe there's one magic that we have applied that is most likely contributing to it. For everything what we do, we are not so much benchmarking ourselves to uh, market solutions or we are not comparing ourselves to uh, competitors, but we are taking a, a kind of a bottom-up uh, white sheet, uh, white paper approach where we reason from first principles, how can the best possible solution look like and what is a path to build the best possible solution from where we are now, which is maybe a very manual and uh, laborsome uh, implementation, up to the best possible, most automated, and most robotized, most AI-ish type of uh, solution in the future. And this is a perspective that many uh, businesses are not taking in this way. But if you do this, then you can actually operate and develop in multiple dimensions at the same time. So you can do more of what you do now, which is this kind of business development. You can do actually more uh, type of services. So this is the business expansion. And you can do it with less effort, which is the automation uh, dimension. Okay. 
Wow, that, that is such a good question to have in, in the back of your mind. Again, I, I made a note and I think you're actually right on the money here. A lot of businesses are looking at what the competition is doing. How do we kind of innovate on top of what they already implemented? But maybe the perfect solution is actually a whole different approach altogether. And only by asking yourself, what is the best possible solution? Do you actually start arriving at that uh, at that solution? Maybe just to add one, uh, one, one interesting uh, thought here. The reason sure. why many um, many businesses or ventures are shying a bit away from this approach is because this is not rocket science. So what I'm saying here is obviously something that uh, uh, us have also figured out. But you need to be willing to move a little bit slower in the beginning because you need to figure out if you start from scratch on a white uh, sheet of paper, everything, you need to be willing to move a bit slower in the beginning while you will be move much, much faster later. So right. everybody sees the red on the horizon that you move faster later, allowing in the beginning to uh, hustle your way along and to move slower is something that requires a lot of stamina and uh, a, a big, big commitment from uh, you uh, as a team, but also from your investors and from many others to allow you to actually uh, do this kind of bottom-up approach. And uh, not many are actually able or willing to do so. Right, because I imagine this competition analysis might take a little bit shorter than just sitting down, you know, whiteboard. Okay, how do we kind of think about it just from the very beginning, from scratch, how to sure. solve that? A competition analysis uh, makes sure that you basically copy uh, what others have done well, and yeah. you do, uh, and you try to improve a bit on uh, the things where you feel you can be a bit better than others. But that yeah. typically misses out the big opportunity to really from scratch and from bottom up do something fundamentally uh, better. Unless you to do kind of get better at the game that's currently being played, but maybe you can reinvent the game, play a whole completely why, different why, game. Why not playing another game? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I get that completely. I get the feeling that we didn't go deep enough into the subject of architecture. Somehow, it feels like in the back, this all boils down to uh, to architecture and its kind of impact on, on all of this. And you even flagged at some point, we're going to get deeper into this uh, a little bit later. So let, let us get deeper into this. Do you think like architecture is, a, is a, I don't want to phrase the question in a way that doesn't allow you to provide the right answer. So maybe let's, let's phrase it like this. What is it about architecture that kind of makes you highlight it so much? Why is it so important for you and why should it be important for tech leaders? Um, I think architecture is, first of all, um, I think ar architecture is a very overloaded term. And uh, if you ask uh, five engineers, you get seven uh, perspectives on uh, on architecture. Yeah. While I think there's a shared common understanding uh, that uh, you, you have a couple of boxes and you need to write a bit what are your classes and the properties, etc. However, uh, what becomes very important is that architecture is probably the uh, as a tech leader uh, your software architecture is defines the limitations or the opportunities uh, towards the future and what i mean by this is if you are thinking about implementing a new uh, a new feature uh, extending uh, your your current implementation or make it more scalable etc is driven by the core architecture how you have organized everything what uh, what you have built so what uh, there are simple examples, for instance, uh, code duplication. Obviously, nobody wants to uh, literally uh, duplicate code, and that is something what all static code analysis tools uh, can identify. Mm -hmm. The much worse duplication uh, that 
that many software systems have is duplicating on a partial functionality. So you have two implementation of that are different, differing uh, only by 10 or 20%, which is technically oh. not really duplications, but, but they, have, they have 80 or 90% commonality. So what you could do obviously is that you factor out the commonalities and you have only this kind of 10 or 20% uh, that are different on the, both taking as in a kind of a class extension or however you model this uh, in your uh, in your architecture. Thinking about this in a very structured way allows you to make the kind of the third implementation that is another, let's say 20% different uh, in, in a much, much easier way because the next time you don't have to make again this 100% implementation, but only the 20% that is different. Mm-hmm. And that is probably a very simple example here. But if you multiply this, because that is something that is exponentially growing as uh, your, your your tech stack is growing, it makes a huge difference in how fast you can move uh, going forward. The main reason, the main reason why, um, why for instance, building something from scratch goes faster than building a, uh, something on top on the existing system is that if you have an existing code base, then most of the development work that you do is changing existing implementation. Most of us, if you work in a company that is older than five years, I promise you that you will spend at least half of your time changing existing code, not building new code, mm-hmm. except uh, maybe just in very exceptional cases. So therefore, thinking from an architectural perspective, making architecture a first-class citizen, and uh, let your technical leaders not talk about implementation. Leave implementation uh, to your developers, uh, even technology choices sometimes, but talk about APIs, make API-driven uh, discussions, and uh, make architecture a first-class citizen, also between tech and product and uh, business, then uh, you will certainly end up in a much more scalable uh, business environment. That makes a lot of sense to me because these developers, again, you're saying past the five-year point, uh, more or less, they're going to spend so much time navigating what can be kind of the maze of existing code. The more you can optimize that maze and make everything more accessible, you're optimizing all future work by focusing on this architecture part. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. What should I say? <laughs> I, just, I just want to make sure that I'm getting things No, uh, you're, right you're, you're absolutely spot on. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I just, just wanted to make sure because, you know, personally not a developer, but I'm learning so much from our Tech Leaders Hub guests. Okay, final question before I ask you about, you know, announcements, where to follow you, et cetera. Uh, and again, this is a traditional question almost at this point, but what I, what I like to ask is, just to be sure to cover myself, is is there anything else that you wanted to kind of mention within this session, you were kind of excited to talk about it, that I somehow haven't asked about that you would also like to put out there as kind of advice for, for Tech Leaders or, or the audience at large? I think um, as tech leaders, we are all uh, very, very strong on uh, understanding uh, both uh, technologies and development processes. I think that's uh, something what we are trained to, that is something what we are good. Uh, Many of us are getting more and more involved and tracked into business. But I think think what we all need to learn uh, better is need to find a common language between tech and business in the form of architecture, but also in form of not thinking in features, but thinking in, uh, let's say, outcomes and uh, KPIs. So what I'm encouraging all my tech leaders and all my product leaders is think in, uh, uh, so define for your tech stack and for your products, the uh, three most important metrics. And the only thing when we're talking about a roadmap, just make an assessment or a judgment on how 
those kind of three KPIs will improve along uh, uh, with this kind of new feature implementation. No qualitative judgment, but at scale, make a uh, metric or KPI-based judgment on uh, maybe a more technical implementation uh, or maybe a product feature implementation. How does it improve uh, the KPIs? If you okay. set this up, it's very, very hard. But if you set this up, you have an organization uh, that can easily scale to, to uh, Google size of 10,000 plus developers. Amazing. So to shed just a little bit more light on this, when you're thinking about building new features, et cetera, can you give at least one or two examples of KPIs that you're looking at? Yes. So for instance, um, if you build such uh, the tech stack for an on e-food company consists, for instance, of consumer app. So there is an mm -hmm. app where customers can place orders. We have only three KPIs. So the KPI is a conversion, meaning, uh, and it has uh, two, two, two aspects, but uh, mainly conversion, meaning you register, how likely is it that you actually place an order. Uh, the second one is the average basket size, and then retention, how long does it take that you're coming back uh, to the shop? Every feature is measured against uh, those kind of three KPIs. No, oh, and that's company-wide? That is, the company is tech, so yes. Okay. That is. But this is for this for this specific feature. There's the same also for and purchase order management system. So this is uh, the system that is buying the products, a system for fulfillment. There's another set of three KPIs. If you send, think about three K, three KPIs for your product, you're uh, certainly uh, already uh, quite quite a step further. The same, and this is obviously a business or product metric. You can do the same also for tech metrics. So for instance, for uh, our hiring process, we have three tech metrics. So what is the time so until an engineer makes a first pull request or gets the first pull request merged? What is the time till the 10th? So first pull request is, is he at least a little bit onboarded? 10th uh, PR means uh, that he is fully onboarded, he can, uh, he can run. And mm -hmm. then uh, the, third, uh, the third metric is uh, for pull requests, how long in average are pull requests open from, uh, from this engineer? Or the other way around is how many people are actually motivated and engaged in the pull request of an engineer. So okay. good onboarding means you have quickly uh, done your first. It doesn't take too long uh, that you have uh, done your 10th PR. And you find a lot of people that want to help you with your pull request uh, on an ongoing basis. And that's how you know you're doing a good job with new hires. It's amazing. And Daniel, honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed that we're almost at the one hour mark here and we don't have any extra time. So let's just get the get the kind of everything else out of the way. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I feel like I just got a masterclass on how to kind of run and scale an e-commerce as a, as a CTO. Great stuff all around. Value per minute was off the charts. So thank you so much for sharing. And I wanted to thank ask you, is there anything... <laughs> I wanted to ask you if there's anything you wanted to announce in terms of, I don't know, hiring. Where do you want people to follow you, follow Picnic? Now is the time to kind of self-promote if you want. Um, uh, there's nothing uh, that I need to promote uh, on myself. But uh, what I want to actually share with you guys is uh, if you are interested in what you have heard so far, then have a look to join.picnic.app or www.picnic.app where you can uh, find everything about Picnic. We're looking for software engineers, data engineers, data scientists, machine learning engineers, deep learning, uh, whatever. If you do something with tech, you will certainly find something interesting at Picnic. Hope to talk to you very soon. And I think uh, we all together in tech are building the future. So you need to be very much aware that we are shaping uh, the society, how it will look like in the future. So be also aware that you do this in a, in a responsible way.
All right. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think you made an excellent case for, for joining Picnic. As for ourselves and who brought you this live session, we're STX Next, Europe's largest Python software development company. If your product is based on Python or JavaScript and you need developers, designers, machine learning engineers, DevOps, or more and support with that, we can help you. We're actually visiting the Netherlands uh, next week. Some tech consultants from our side are coming. So if anybody here from based in the Netherlands wants to meet with us and get kind of consulting on how to grow faster, grow better, build better software, we're there uh, you know, in, in the Netherlands and globally. stxnext.com for more Tech Leaders Hub to follow us and get informed about upcoming session techleadershub.com. I follow up SDX Next on LinkedIn primarily, and that's where we are the most active and we, where you will certainly get more exciting Tech Leaders Hub sessions like this one. All right, 3.58. I did promise we're not going to go over time. So Daniel, thank you again so much for finding the time to be a guest on our session. I, I honestly love this. And I do you do these often, I wonder? No, not really. <laughs> You should. You really should. You're a natural at this. And, you know, I've run a few of these, so I should know. Uh, so thank you again for, for being our guest. And, you know, everybody, everybody else, watchers and listeners, you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, guys. Have a nice day. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Okay, bye. See you at the next one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tech Leaders Hub. If you want more advice that will make you a better technical leader, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Tech Leaders Hub sessions are usually streamed live, giving you the opportunity to get answers to your burning questions directly from our guests. To take part in Tech Leaders Hub Live, follow STX Next on LinkedIn and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. That's S-T-X-N-E-X-T. Last but not least, we invite you to join our community and continue the discussion on Facebook. Just search for Tech Leaders Hub and you'll find our dedicated Facebook group. Once again, thanks for listening. Really glad you could join us. Hope we'll see you in the next one.